Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Robert Neald is fascinated by China's treaty ports and has visited around 70 of them. They were set up by foreign powers from the mid-19th century until 1943. This is Robert Neald's second book on the subject, China's Foreign Places. Having developed an interest in treaty ports, it was suggested to me that I write a book about them. The first was called The China Coast and that was published a few years ago. That's uh, a book in two halves, I guess. The first half is a historical narrative of the Europeans coming to trade in China, the Portuguese, the Dutch and the British, and there was a big bang of the the Opium War. The second half was um, the story of each of the six cities that were opened by the Treaty of Nanking in 1842. That's Hong Kong and the first five so-called treaty ports, um, which was uh, strung along the coast, Amoy, Fuchao, Ningbo, Shanghai and, of course, Canton. But I felt dissatisfied because that's only part of the story in terms of the treaty ports. Um, that I knew there was more than five, there's more than ten, fifteen, twenty, how many were there? And that got me onto a challenge of finding out how many there were. It's difficult to be precise, but I think in terms of treaty ports, there's probably more than a hundred. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to go and see them all and then write about them? And that was really my mission, to to go and visit all of them and to write about them. The first part I had to give up because my wife wouldn't appreciate it if I said, hi, I'm on the North Korean border. Some of these places are a little bit remote, a little bit dangerous. And also the treaty ports that were in uh, places like near the North Korean border and the depths of Manchuria were very small, hardly significant, and only existed in anything apart from a name for a couple of years or so. So I think that was out of the question. So what we have here in China's Foreign Places is a detailed description of about 70-something of these places, of which I've been to nearly all of them. Now, you weren't the first to write a book about all the treaty ports, but it's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while. The the last one was done, uh, let's see, 1867 it was, and I'm terribly pleased with that. In fact, I've... um, taken the uh, the quotes at the beginning of my book. I've quoted what was at the beginning of that book in 1867 by um, Myers, Dennis and King where they say very humbly that this isn't supposed to be a complete history of these places but it brings to the reader's attention some interesting things. It's more or less what I'd like to say but it's in rather sort of dated language these days. What I have done is try to bring each of these places to life in the same way as they did in 1867. Now in terms of what you discovered, uh, certain of the places uh, I would imagine that have been very much uh, developed since then um, so it would have been a bit difficult to track some of the old buildings but generally uh, in terms of the history that you show us, I mean some of it is very violent uh, in terms of some of the treaty ports um, there were the issues of pirates, there were issues of plague. Um, some, I'm amazed that these treaty ports ever got started. But can you tell me, I mean, was it a whole mix of nationalities, uh, depending on where these treaty ports were? It was a whole mix of nationalities, principally the British, because the British were the first to uh, open treaty ports, were there after the Opium War of uh, 1842. So it was principally the British, but one important principle was, uh, in fact, the the British um, government at the time said, we don't want anything, any rights and privileges which are not available to members of any other nation. So it wasn't saying, this is ours, we're going to keep it. Britain really wanted to open these places for trade, and the more trade there was, uh, the the happier merchants would be. Uh, And so there were British in the lead. The French were largely interested in religion. That's that's a very um, broad... Uh, statement, but they weren't so quick off the mark in terms of commerce. 
uh, the Germans were and the Americans were, and then later the Japanese were as well. So it's mainly those, um, those uh, four or five nations who were the leaders in any of these places. So from the 1840s onwards, what's the reaction of China? Are they happy to have these treaty ports? Is it more that they're forced to have them? The official reaction was absolute horror. We got these foreign barbarians living in our country. The unofficial reaction was, yeah, they're living here and they're making lots of money and we're making lots of money as well. Opium is not a very happy story for either side, but huge fortunes were made by Chinese and by foreigners in handling opium initially and then a whole raft of other imports and exports. So whilst in principle the foreigners were not welcomed at all, uh, the money they brought was very welcome. Thank you very much. I'm talking with Robert Neal on his book, China's Foreign Places, the Foreign Presence in China in the Treaty Port Era, 1840 to 1943. 70 plus treaty ports, do you have a favourite? <laughs> oh, yes, I've got a favourite. Oh, yes. um, do I have a favourite? Interesting question. Um, I, I guess I do. My favourite uh, used to be called Chi Fu. It's now called Yantai. It's up on the north coast of Shandong province. I've been there, I think, five times, uh, and I'm planning to go there again. I find it a favourite for a number of reasons. One, the, the base, basis on which it first started the British Treaty of Tientsin in 1858 named a place called Tengchao, which was 70 kilometers along the coast from uh, Chifu. And the first British consul who went there officially to open the consulate at Tengchao looked around and thought, no, 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 it can't be here. There's nothing here. This is a dump. This must be a mistake. Let's go and look for something better. And 70 kilometers along the coast, they found this place called Chifu. And he said, ah, this is where I'm sure they meant. So he opened uh, Her Britannic Majesty's consulate of Teng Chao in Chifu. And it was called Teng Chao for the next 25 years, like as if nobody's going to notice, you know. <laughs> of course they notice. But I think that's quite a cute um, story about the uh, relative uh, strengths or powers, if you like, of the foreigners, because they would say, yeah, the treaty says this, but we, we don't think it's a very nice place at all. We're going to go over there. Now, what's still there in Chifu, there is a hill uh, sticking out into the sea where there's a dozen or more old consulate buildings, uh, customs residences, all grouped together and, I'm happy to say, protected. It's a protected area now. You have to pay to get in. It's beautifully managed, like so many of these old buildings in China. But there's more in Chifu that, than that. There were schools there. It was called the Brighton of China. There's um, a lot of schools, holidays. People used to go up there, maybe from Hong Kong, for a nice holiday by the sea. Perfect climate, and it's, it still is, of course. Lovely weather up there. So Chifu, I think, is a favourite, and I'm looking forward to going again later this year. When you said that the buildings are protected, so is it sort of a museum, or is it being used for something else? Um, a bit of both. Uh, some of them are uh, museums. Others... It's a strange thing in China. I think in the last 10 or 15 years, they've stopped demolishing these embarrassing reminders of old colonial presence in their country. And they thought, well, it's quite a nice building, actually. Uh, maybe the cynics would say it's going to bring in tourist dollars. But they started renovating them, or at least they started to stop knocking them down. Then they started protecting them, renovating them. There's some really first-class renovations in China from the pro provincial and city and, in some cases, even the national government um, for these buildings, which are obviously very foreign. But I'm sure they don't have a soft spot for them like I do. But they realize, hey, it's part of our history. It's there. It is quite an attractive building, so let's look after it. Unfortunately, though, a lot of them don't seem to have a use. Uh, some are museums, some are used as government offices, but a lot of them are just sitting there looking beautiful, all dressed up with nowhere to go, unfortunately. 
describe to me, I mean, we're using the term treaty port. Did it, so basically all of these ports came out of treaties? Um, good question. They didn't, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> funny that, given the name, treaty port, it's a port out of a treaty. Um, the initial five were out of the Treaty of uh, Nanking. Then another treaty uh, of uh, Tientsin created some more. And it became formulaic that the treaties opened various places, which were typically ports, or probably always ports, for foreign trade and residence. And I found it difficult to define how many treaty ports there were. You'd think, well, you just look at the treaties and add them up. It's not as simple as that, because... Towards the end of the uh, 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there was a new sort of uh, concept whereby the Chinese government started opening places unilaterally. Why would they do that? Because basically they hated the foreigners. But it gave them some sort of control. But rather than have the foreigners open that place, we're going to open it ourselves and say, foreigners, you can come here, so therefore it doesn't become a British place or a German place. It's a Chinese place where foreigners are perfectly at liberty to come. So those places were not opened by treaty. They were referred to as open cities. But then the Japanese spoiled things a little bit because they held a gun to China's head, uh, in figuratively as well as literally, by saying, you will open this place, won't you? And, of course, China said, yes, of course we will. We'll open it right now, sir. Um, so there was a, a sort of forced opening of places by treaty sometimes, but not by treaty all times. So it's, it gets very woolly. Is it a treaty port or not? I've added up all these places um, where there was some sort of foreign presence, and I think there's about 250 in total. Some of them were villages up in Manchuria. Some of them were leased territories, like Wei Hai Wei and Guangzhou Wan in, in, the, in the south. Some were colonies, like Hong Kong and Macau. Um, uh, others were, were seaside resorts, like Pei Tai Ho and stuff. But all of them had, for, to some extent, a foreign presence, a foreign jurisdiction. It might have only been one man and his dog, or it might have been a huge community. Uh, but there's, there's a whole vast array of different types, and they're described in the book. Um, so treaty port is used often as a, as a catch-all term. Qingdao, yeah, the famous German treaty port. It wasn't a treaty port, it was a leased territory, if you want to be pedantic about it. But I've tried not to be too pedantic in this book. But some of these places were really dire. Oh, they were. They were, they were horrible. Um, if I do a third book or a third exercise in this uh, <laughs> subject, if, I don't know, I might do something totally different. But it would be looking at why so many of these places failed. No matter what started it, any one of these places, every one of these places, somebody somewhere thought, yep, that's the place we're going to be. That's the place that's going to produce all this um, trade and income and wealth for us. So many of them, it just didn't happen. Some of them, as you say, were absolutely dire. There's Pak Hoi, or Beihai, on the south coast of China in Guangxi province that was absolutely horrible. The British consul had to live more or less on a beach in a, in a fisherman's wooden shack. And instead of Her Brit Britannic Majesty's um, consulate, it was referred to as Her Britannic Majesty's cowshed. Um, not very flattering, but that's more or less what it was. And because in many of the places the local uh, Chinese government officials were told, this person is coming, you have no choice, they, they reacted by saying, right, he can come, but we're not going to help him at all. We're not going to give him any facilities, any housing, anything. And some of them were absolutely horrible places to go, but the consuls initially had to go there. They had no choice. And the merchants, probably even braver than the consuls, because the consuls were posted there by the British government or the foreign government, the, the merchants said, well, I'm going to go there and see what's, what's happening. 
what problems did uh, early settlers there face in terms of, uh, well, illness, in terms of bandits? Well, there were three problems that, that came up um, more or less uh, in turn very rapidly. One was piracy, one was plague, and the other was typhoons. So these, um, in those days, Pakhoi was opened in the, in the 1858 treaty, so the early 1860s, you'd have these proper Victorian ladies, because a lot of the consuls and merchants took their families with them. These ladies and their crinolines, oh, it's getting a bit breezy. What's that? And then whammo, this enormous typhoon would come in. When the typhoon left, they'd find that it had a plague that uh, decimated the population. And then there were pirates. It was rough living, really rough living, um, with very little in the way of compensation. When we look at the treaty ports of, 80, uh, of the 1840s onwards, you mentioned, of course, opium. But what other key, you know, was it trade that was going both ways? Was it sort of exports from China? The nature of trade is it has to be really a two-way process. If there's only one way, it can't last very long. And that's why opium started in the first place, because China didn't want anything the West had to offer. There's that famous time when the emperor actually said that. We have no need at all for anything that you can produce uh, until opium came along. Um, but opium, I don't want to overplay that. It was very much a part of the beginning of the treaty port system, but it very quickly uh, was overtaken by uh, cotton and wool goods coming in and all sorts of other things coming out of China. Tea and porcelain were always popular. Uh, latterly, there were minerals and um, other products when China started manufacturing. It, it was a full two-way trade with just about everything that, that the West on the one hand and China on the other could produce. So the opium was largely coming in from India? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was coming in from British India. And the cotton and the wool? The cotton, um, well, the cotton came from Lancashire, but uh, if you go to Lancashire, you don't see vast cotton fields, of course. The cotton came from America into Lancashire. Some actually came from China into Lancashire and was made into cloth and cotton goods and then came back the other way. Uh, and wool, of course, uh, from, from England to, to the uh, more northerly in cold parts of China. Next week, Robert Neal tells me about the increased industrialisation of some of the ports, the advent of the steamship and how, in the Second World War, it was felt that treaty ports should be relegated to the past. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.